We come today to start chapter 2 in the Gospel of John, which has already been a good journey for us, and we're coming to a very well-known passage, the wedding at Cana. I'm happy about this message because to confess to you truthfully, as simple as the passage is, it has bothered me consistently every time I've ever read it throughout all the years of being a Christian. That may not have been the case for you. You may have read through and understood everything that was said by Mary and by Jesus and have full insight into the brief statements that are made by those two people, but those statements have always bothered me. And I have never understood them. Never. Only maybe in the most basic, obscure sense, but up until this week, having had the time finally to study it in detail, I really can say I never have understood it. And that is part of the thrill to me of studying through a book verse by verse with the saga continuing each week is that we get to learn together. So I simply want to share with you what I learned about this passage and studying it this week. As we come to the wedding at Cana, these verses describe a miracle which should always, I think, possess a special interest for those of us that are truly Christians because here is the first in the order of time publicly of many of our Lord's mighty works, specifically signs that John draws upon in his gospel to glorify Christ and show who he was. And here is the first of miracles that Jesus did publicly and thus it becomes something that is very important, one that holds a special place for us as God's people. And like all of the miracles that John records, each one of these miracles are rich in spiritual lessons. So there are certain things that we want to understand in terms of what actually happened, and then there are certain things that we want to glean to apply to our lives so that we can go away and have a richer relationship with Jesus Christ as a result. And that is my desire as we come to this text today. But let's read through verses 1 through 12. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. It's interesting to me that the first miracle we encounter is this one that is recorded in kind of a low-key record of the event. To look at this thing and look at how the Holy Spirit arranged all of this and how God put it all together, you would think that if the Lord wanted to really impress us with a miracle, that perhaps He would have started the whole thing off with raising Lazarus from the dead, calming the storm, something like that. So the question has to come to your mind, I mean, at least right off the top, why this? Why a wedding? Why turning water into wine as opposed to feeding the 5,000 or something like that? And I think the obvious answer is simply this, that Jesus wants us to know that He has come to be involved in everyday life. He has come to provide in everyday life. He has come to see us in a moment of desperate need, even if it is only a moment of desperate need in everyday life in a little small village called Cana, with a group of people who were obviously poor, and that's why they ran out of wine. And so here is our Lord recording the first miracle, doing His first miracle in an everyday setting of life because Jesus has come to bless 
people in their everyday lives. And the other thing is that he comes and puts his blessing upon this situation and he gets involved in it, he's a part of it, he's a part of the festivities. And I think that is to set him apart and aside from John the Baptist. I mean, you could have gotten the idea of looking at John the Baptist living out in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey. Here is John, a recluse, living out in the desert, wearing this wild outfit of camel hair and all of this. You might get the idea that to serve God, you have to go live like that. Jesus comes along in, in contrast to John's ministry, which was special. And he wants everybody to know that he's come to minister in everyday common life and minister in a wonderful way, especially when the unanticipated thing arises and you have a desperate crisis. So here in front of us, we have basically, I see in the passage, three things. We have the wedding at Cana, we have the statement by Mary, and we have the miracle by Jesus. Very simple. And yet it needs some explanation, I think. Let's talk about the wedding at Cana to begin with, get into a little bit of the background of this wedding at Cana. It says in chapter 2 and verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, which would have been six disciples and Jesus. It's not a giant crowd like later on. And so it's just a short distance from Nazareth. It was actually the town of Nathanael in John 21 2. It calls Nathanael a man of Cana in Galilee, lists him as Nathanael of Cana. So you remember the last thing that happened was that Jesus had encountered Nathanael, and then they're traveling up toward Galilee and they pass through his hometown, which is a very small place. Now, the process of a wedding like this was a long and a rich one. By rich, I mean rich in detail. These people in this little town of Cana probably didn't have any money. This was probably the greatest event of their whole life. And they come to this wedding. Now, this is a village wedding feast that we're looking at here, probably in a house that wasn't that big, probably not even all that many people there. You might imagine in your mind some great big grand wedding, some huge hall and all of these hundreds and hundreds of people there probably wasn't like that at all. But yet, as many people as could come to it in that small little place that knew the bride and groom. So the scene is a village wedding feast. The way it worked out is that the wedding ceremony actually took place late in the evening after this feast that they had. And after the feast, then the ceremony would take place and they would take then the young couple and conduct them to their new home. By that time it was dark, they would do it just at the right time so it could get dark because they wanted to lead them through the village streets by the light of flaming torches just for a better, warmer effect. And they would lead them down through the streets with these torches lit on each side and they would have a canopy they would be carrying over their heads and they would take them home to the groom's home by the longest route through town so that the most amount of people possible could come out and greet them and wish them well in their new marriage. And so it was a wonderful festive thing. But lest you think it ended there and they went off to the honeymoon the way we do it in America, it did not. Everybody followed them home and then for the rest of the week the married couple stayed home and had open house. And the feasting and the celebrations went on for about a week or sometimes even longer. And what they would do is they would treat the bride and groom like a king and a queen. They'd dress them up, they'd wear these little crowns, and, and they would really lay it on them for a week. So you can understand, in a life where there was much poverty and ongoing hard work all the time, to have a week of festivity and joy in a wedding situation like this was really one of the supreme events in life in a little town like Cana. It is to that scene in which we come in this passage, a village wedding ceremony. Long before the wedding ever took place, there was the engagement, the betrothal. And this was something that was sort of like an engagement today, with the exception that it was much more binding. I mean, with an engagement today as we know it, if you want to end the engagement, all you do is just take off the ring and hand it back. To end an engagement in our society, take off the ring, give it back, say goodbye, don't call me, don't write me letters, don't come over, don't call my mom, don't call my friends, don't pressure me, leave me alone, I'm out of it. Well, in, in this environment, if you entered into a betrothal, this engagement, 
the initial ceremony was actually the binding one. So that to get out of the betrothal, you had to have just about the equivalent of a divorce. And this thing was then taking place, and often it would go then for the better part of a year where you were betrothed to one another, but you didn't move in and live with one another. It was really a testing time to see your purity and devotion to one another during that up to maybe a year period of time, maybe shorter, but a long period of time. And then when that was done, then you would have the feast, then you would have the ceremony in the evening, then you would have the ongoing celebrations for a week. So you look at this whole thing of the wedding process in those days and you see a wonderful reverence for the marriage union. You see a wonderful richness. You begin to understand how people viewed the marriage union in those days. Now in the midst of all of this, you have the importance of the wine. I mean, obviously it's important. Here's a whole 12 verses dedicated to it in the very first chapters here of the Gospel of John. William Barclay, who is so good at bringing out some of the history of these things, had something to say about the wine. He said, for a Jewish feast, wine was essential. Without wine, said the rabbis, there is no joy. Now, Barclay goes on to say, it is not that the people were drunken, but rather that in the East, wine was an essential. Drunkenness was in fact a great disgrace and always taught against by the rabbis. And they actually drank their wine in a mixture composed of two parts of wine to three parts of water. At any time, the failure of provisions would have been a problem for hospitality in the East is a sacred duty. But for the provisions to fail at a wedding would be a terrible humiliation for the bride and groom. So you've got to paint yourself into the picture. You've got to understand the basic place of wine in that society. You understand how they mixed it together with water. You understand that to have it was an essential, but to have it at a feast and a celebration like this was something that if you were to run out of it in the midst of the celebration, it would be the most humiliating thing imaginable. And that is the picture we have in front of us in John chapter 2. So that's the background of the wedding at Cana. Now, there are a few lessons that I can see right off the top from this wedding. One is the honor of marriage in the sight of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. In his very first public act of supernatural ministry, we find Jesus doing it at a wedding. I mean, what does that say of the importance of the marriage union and of his blessing upon it? To me, it speaks volumes. And it echoes what we read in Hebrews 13:4 that marriage should be honored by all. So here's Jesus, and he strategically places himself in a sovereign way in this wedding to perform his first supernatural ministry. So never forget, if you face a marriage or have a friend who is facing a marriage, Jesus did his first public miracle supernaturally at a wedding. He was there validating the union that he as creator put in place way back in the beginning of the history of man when he brought the man and the woman together. Don't forget that John identifies Jesus Christ in the very first chapter, in the very first verses as the creator. And so here the creator shows up at a wedding, the one who invented marriage to begin with. So that is to me something that comes right out of the text. And then another thing that is here, which I think is important and I just want to touch on, is the blessing of God upon having a good time. Do you realize God wants you to have a good time? The Lord wants you to enjoy something like a great time with family and friends and feasting and barbecuing, whatever it might be. The Lord wants you to have a good time. What a strange thing it is to go out into the world and have someone say, Jesus wants to give you joy. Jesus wants to give you peace. Jesus wants to give you a new life. You'll have more fun and a better time as a Christian than you ever had before. And then you meet that person in real life. And they are the gloomiest, the most melancholy, the most introspective kind of a creature with a constant cloud. Here now, the non-Christian says, how you doing? To this person who says, you can have joy and peace and love and all of this God's going to give. And it's all by grace. How you doing? You don't want to know. Well, how's the Lord been treating you? I don't know if I'm saved. Oh, really? Is He working in your life? I don't know. I have so many hang-ups. If that's your Christianity, may I challenge you today to get rid of it 
And to come back to Jesus and get the real thing. Learn to rest in the Lord. Learn to have a good time in life. May I say, for God's sake, have a good time. For God's sake, have a good time. Because God wants you to have a good time. He loves you. You're His child. If you're so wound up in your own mind and your own problems and your own inadequacies all the time, year in and year out, you don't have a biblical Christianity. You have a problem. That's what you have. It's called you. When you're so preoccupied with looking at you, you rarely look at Jesus. Look at the Jesus here at the wedding. Look at the Jesus who, believe it or not, made wine and then sent it down the hallway to have the people drink it. Look at this Jesus who wants you to have a good time and puts his blessing upon a good time here. You say, well, where do you draw the line in having a good time? I'd say draw it this way. Always make sure that you go to have a good time in the spirit of your divine master. Always make sure that you would never go where he wouldn't go. Always make sure that when you go, you're like him and you look for the opportunity for a word fitly spoken to fall upon the ears of those that you would spend time with. Always seek to promote joy as he did and gladness as he did. So that here you are with others, they may be Christian, non-Christian, whatever, human beings. I mean, you're a human being. You can be with other human beings. And you're having a great time and you're letting everybody see it. That's all right. doesn't have to be a fake, syrupy, overbearing, fake Jesus grin thing constantly, you know, where you're really not having a good time, but if you see them looking at you, you... (laughs) Have a good time in the Lord. He loves you. Listen, when you see an honest-to-goodness, joy-filled, fun-loving Christian who knows how to have good, wholesome, innocent, clean fun, sinless joy, sinless fun, it tears down so many walls. J.C. Ryle said years ago, a merry heart and a readiness to take part in all innocent mirth are gifts of inestimable value. They go far to soften prejudices, to take up stumbling blocks out of the way, and to make way for Christ and the gospel. That's right. You see the abundant life and you end up wanting it. You want to trade in what you have for the real thing. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 10.19, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes life merry. There it is. Now, I'm not telling you all to go out and buy wine after the service. Let's take these things in context, shall we? So the wedding... And some of the great things we see there. Then we come to the statement from Mary. This is where it begins to get very interesting. You notice there's no mention of Joseph here. Seems he had probably died sometime earlier. In fact, if you figure it all out, here is Jesus. And he has lived for 18 years from the time we saw him with his parents at the temple. He's lived in Nazareth for 18 years. No mention of his father. He probably died years ago. And Jesus probably for around 18 years has... The older brother probably had to take care of the family as a carpenter, mason, and work hard and raise uh, with his mother the other younger children that came along. And then at the moment in time that's right, he comes out from that environment, out from that life, out from even the type of relationship he had with his mother all those years, 30 years, and he comes public with his ministry. So no mention of Joseph here at the wedding, but this statement from Mary, I'd like to look at it with you. Verse 3. It says, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now that might seem simple enough to you, but there is so much in this. Here is her perception of what she had been anticipating for a long time. Her perception is manifested here that his hour had come, to put it in the words of the text. She comes and she says, they have no wine. Literally, the wine has failed. There's no more. Now, she comes and she says this, Probably because she was involved with the family, maybe a relative, maybe in charge with that end of the festivities, which would seem to be right because she's ordering the servants around later. But here her understanding of recent events, I believe, moved her to this statement. Why does she come to Jesus at that point in time? It seems to me the recent events, the announcer of the Messiah, and she had known all along he's the Messiah. She had carried these things in her heart that the angel had showed her in the very beginning before she even had the child. And then 30 years with him, she carries these things in her heart. 30 years she waits for him to manifest himself as God. And then he lives with him a normal, ordinary, submissive life as a good child, good teenager, good young man, taking care of the family when dad dies. 
And suddenly there's this need in this little wedding feast in Cana. And she comes and she says they have no wine. It seems to me she is thinking of all that had gone hidden in her heart for 30 years. And she's thinking of John saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And now he comes and he has six new disciples. He has officially begun to manifest himself publicly as the one to follow. She sees this as the beginning of his public ministry. And now, having pondered these things for years, she sees an opportunity to be seized upon to manifest who he is to the world. It's time for a miracle, son. That's the idea. Now, there's nothing to indicate, as I've been alluding to right now, that he ever did a miracle growing up. You could go to some of the extra-biblical literature that's out there and read some of the weird books that are there that chronicle the story of Jesus as a child. In the silent years of the Bible, where we know nothing of this childhood, and they speak of these things, the boy Jesus doing these miracles, there's not a shred of that in the Bible. Everything would really serve to indicate that he never did anything like that. And so she's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and now, with this opportunity, the wine runs out. The family there is going to be humiliated. The bride and the groom is going to start off their marriage on a, on a very bad note. And she wants to help them. It's a desperate thing for these, these two people that have just gotten married. And she comes and she says they have no wine. And here's the point. She wanted to make it happen right there and right now. Her understanding of recent events caused her to say what she said. Let me go further and say this. Perhaps, and I'm in the realm of conjecture at the moment, but perhaps her 30-year burden as a stigmatized mother also moved her to this statement. You understand what I mean by that? The stigma of showing up pregnant during the betrothal. Remember, Joseph went through that whole trial, and he had to face the idea, am I going to divorce her? I mean, that is really what should be done in a situation like this. And if she shows up unfaithful during the betrothal, the idea is you're taken out and stoned to death. That's the way they dealt with fornication at that time, during the betrothal. So here's this woman from day one with this man, Jesus, who was her child, her boy that she gave birth to. From the first moment that the announcement came and then the conception by the Holy Spirit, then the resulting birth, there has been a stigma on her life. She's the cheap one. She's the one that has the baby like that. And he's the son. So he's now the son with this stigma. So mother and son have this stigma for 30 years. Rather than being known for what he was, the son of God, born not of a fornicating mother, but of the blessed virgin, the holy child, teenager really, that God came to, born of the blessed holy virgin. She wanted that stigma lifted. Perhaps that's a motivation here. If you turn in your Bible to John 8, you see this in verse 41. This is after this. He's out preaching and ministering, challenging these ungodly religious leaders. He says, you do the deeds of your father. He told them their father was the devil. And look how they come back at him. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Listen, don't you presume to talk to us about God. We know your background. We know your mother. We know what happened. Don't you dare presume to talk to us about the things of God. So here he is in the middle now of his ministry and the stigma is there. Get into the heart of Mary and just think about what she would have brought with her to that wedding that might have prompted her to say the words, at that time, they have no wine. It seems to be me, this is a gentle prod of a very unique and very loving mother who wanted to see things turn around and had waited a long time to see that happen. Notice here that she doesn't really request anything. She simply states the need. And here's the tact and the carefulness of Mary and the respect of Mary. It says here that when they ran out of wine in John 2, 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So here's her perception that his hour had come and she comes and gently prods him to do something but doesn't ask him but is really hoping for a miracle and hoping that that miracle will suffice to let everybody know who he is and turn everything around in their lives and especially for him to launch him into fulfilling what God had promised so very long ago to her and to the shepherds and to all that were involved in his birth. Her perception was that his hour had come. Now her perception of his hour was too limited. 
You see, she could not fully anticipate what it would take to completely manifest who he was and what he had come to do. And this is why we get this odd reply from Jesus. So the statement from Mary leads to the response from Jesus in verse 4. And I want to say this before we even read the verse. That Jesus' response was very, very deep and very loving and considerate. And I say that because at first glance, it seems to be a harsh, cold response to a very special mother. And so we read in John 2, 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that statement at first glance seems to be cold, doesn't it? Woman, woman? This is your mother. You're Jesus. Woman? I mean, that's pretty cold. Well, it's easy to say that from here. You know, we're sitting here, it's 2,000 years later, and we're reading it in, on a page, mostly black and white with a little red, right? But you see, we can't hear the tone in his voice. We can't see in the black and white letters on the page the look in his eyes. We can't see perhaps the touch on her shoulder or the arm that goes around her shoulder. We don't see or hear any of that. What we see is this. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? I love what G. Campbell Morgan said here. He said, I do not know a piece of translation which hides the spirit of something said more than that does. Let me read that to you again. I do not know a piece of translation which hides the spirit of something said more than that does. See, what Morgan is saying is you read that and you do not get anything of what is really going on in that translation. The problem with it is that even the Greek literal translation is wooden. It almost would make no sense to any of us. We'd have to read it in the Greek and know Greek fluently to have it make sense. Even then it's difficult. So he says, woman. And I suggest to you he is not being cold with her. He's being loving with her. You see, the word he used here is the very same word he used when he was addressing his mother on the cross when he was dying. And he looked down at her. In John 19, why don't you turn to John 19, you can see it with me. Here Jesus is dying, the foot of the cross is his mother who gave birth to him. No doubt is her, in her mind is echoing the words, he said to her this very day at the wedding, my hour has not yet come. Now she understands what he meant by that. Now she sees him dying. Now she knows the fullness of what it meant to have his hour come. And here in the agony that only that mother could know, having conceived this child through the Holy Spirit, given birth to the God-man, a unique agony that only that mother could know, here in a moment of the tenderest possible love, beaten within an inch of his life and hanging on the cross in agony, he takes the time to manifest that love. And the way he does it is he says in John 19:26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, that's John the Beloved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now that is not a cold, harsh statement. That is a statement full of pathos and the, the greatest kind of empathy and feeling you could ever have. And he is saying, look at John. And then in verse 27, he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. He wanted to care for Mary. He wanted to set her up right so she would be cared for before he departed out of this world. It is a great act of love. He uses the exact same word there, woman, that he uses in John chapter 2 and verse 4. So he's not being cold and insensitive. And by the way, it is the same word that Augustus Caesar used when he went and met Cleopatra. He used the exact same word in addressing the Queen Cleopatra. Same exact Greek word. It is not a cold word. It is a good word. And it is especially good in this context. So immediately get out of your mind the fact, the impression that Jesus is being cold and saying, Woman, no. It's more like what you have in the NIV where it says, Dear woman, dear woman. It is a tender thing. So this word we needed to deal with, woman. And then this phrase, this question, he says to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? That's an amazing thing. It seems like he's saying, so what? So the wine failed. You're bringing that to me? I'm not a wine dealer. 
go tell someone else about it. Woman, what's that got to do with me? I'm a rabbi. I'm not a wine salesman. And so it seems so cold even again now. He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? He's saying this. What all do you want to have happen in this situation? That's what he's saying. Dear woman, what do you want to have happen here exactly? Exactly what is on your mind? And know this, it is a question with 30 years of meaning folded into it. Again, I share the words of G. Campbell Morgan with you. He described this so well. He said it was as if he said, Dear mother, I know what you want, but you do not understand. There are limitations to your understanding of me. Mother of my flesh, dear to my heart, mother under whose heart my life was enshrined when God prepared for me my body, Mother, there are limitations to your understanding. You have been watching over me all my years, and now I seem to be moving out into public work. You are anxious that I shall do something that will, re that will reveal the meaning of my personality, my personhood, and, and my whole mission. Mother, you're anxious that I would do something that would manifest who I am. Exactly what do you have in mind? All of that is folded into this. Thirty years of similar understanding buried in each other's hearts, understanding the plan of God. And she comes with her conception of how this can be launched now and how he can be manifest in his glory. And he says exactly, what do you want? What do you have in mind? And then tags this onto it, my hour has not yet come. Now that seems to be saying, woman, this is no time to be working a miracle. That's what I've had a problem with for 23 years. I come along and I read this, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Don't come asking for a miracle at a time like this. And then he turns right around and immediately does the miracle. That's why I've had a problem with it. Hey, if you're not going to do it because your hour hasn't come, then why did you do it? That's the problem I've had with it for years. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What can he possibly be saying? This is no time for working a miracle? That's what it seems like, but that is not what it means. That is not what it means. Listen very closely. When we read, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. He is saying, I know what you want, but it's going to take a lot longer than you think. And it's not going to happen the way you think. He said, in effect, this sign cannot satisfy the hunger of your heart. It will not produce the effect that you desire. You see, this phrase, my hour has not yet come, has to do with the ultimate end of his public ministry. That only becomes clear as you track this phrase through the entire Gospel of John. It has to do with the ultimate end of his public ministry. And you have to track it all the way through to understand that. And I want to do that with you right now. Woman, my hour has not yet come. We see it in John 2, 4, but then we see it again in John 7, 6. Could you turn there to John 7, 6? Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Exact same words. Then go down to verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. What is this hour that must come? What is this ultimate thing? Go to John 8.20. John 8.20. Jesus is out preaching. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him. Why? For his hour had not yet come. He goes on from here to show that what he's referring to about this and what is being referred to when we read it is his coming death on the cross and his resurrection from that death and ultimately then his ascension back into glory where he sits at the right hand of God. That is the ultimate revelation of who he was. That is the ultimate revelation of why he came. And that ultimately sets everything in place that would have alleviated all the burdens of all the years. And we find that. Continue on to John 12, to verse 23. There's a certain point in time that's hit. The Greeks come, they want to find Jesus. And they come to Philip, he brings them to Andrew, who brings them to Jesus. And then we get this all of a sudden. 
My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And then all of a sudden, in John 12, 23, Jesus answered them and he said, The hour has come. The Son of Man should be glorified. Now before the feast of the Passover, go to John 13, to verse 1. We get a further understanding of this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now he has announced that his hour has come. In John 13, 1, he knows that his hour has come, and that's going to involve departing from this world. He's going to die, be raised, and go back into heaven. And then go to John 17, to verse 1. And here comes the ultimate consummation of all this, the ultimate revelatory statement. It all comes together here. And Jesus spoke these words, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Isn't it amazing how this all unfolds? Isn't it amazing that his first reference to this hour is to his mother and his last reference to this hour is to his father who was God in heaven? So you begin to understand what he meant when Mary comes and says there's a crisis, there's a desperate need, the wine has failed. And he says my hour has not yet come. It begins to take on meaning. It begins to take on sense. So now go back to John 2 to verse 4. And what does Jesus mean when he says to Mary, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He means this. I know what you are implying. I know what you are hoping for. But woman, no matter how great the miracle that occurs here today, it will not accomplish what only my ultimate hour can accomplish. And there are things attendant to that hour that you cannot now understand. And so he is tender with her, and he is instructive with her, and he is very deep in these thoughts with her. That is the response of Jesus. What a marvelous response it is. Deep and considerate to Mary. And yet at the same time, it is highly instructive to us. Because here, as we look at Jesus, we learn the lesson of doing all things in God's time. She comes, she sees the opportunity, but he explains there is an hour for this thing to be done in the fullness of the way that it will be done. And he will not violate that process, God's timing, not even for his own mother. And here comes a turning point now that is permanent in his relationship with his mother, Mary. All his life he's been subject to his mother as a child, a good child, a good teenager, a good young man. But now as he goes public with his ministry, he is subject to God the Father alone. Mary, don't give me any more suggestions, is almost latent within what he is saying. Because Mary, from now on, with all due respect, I've followed your suggestions, I've followed your guidance, I've been a good son to you, but from now on, I must be about my father's business. A prophecy he had even foretold in the temple as a child of 12. From now on, Mary, there's a shift in our relationship. You're still my mother, but now I am the full God-man, manifesting myself in that kind of manifestation to the world. So Mary, you're going to have to back off somewhat from our previous relationship and let me do what I have come to do just a world of richness in this small section here with these few statements. And it is so instructive of the lesson of doing all things in God's time. I think that is one of the hardest things for us to learn because we are all too often influenced by people around us. There's a crisis. There's a desperate need. It's a part of life. Someone comes and they share the pressure with us and we cave into the pressure. Someone comes and they're giving us advice and we're waiting on God. We think we're hearing God and someone comes along and says, I don't think God's saying that. I think God is saying this. And you give in to that kind of advice of a friend. Along comes the threatening of an enemy. You hear about it. It comes to your ears. You hear the gossip going around about you. You cave into it. You alter your course. There's a mid-course correction when God hasn't inspired it. Either the pressure or the friends or the enemy or whatever, the circumstance. And so what happens is we end up going beyond what God is leading in that hour. 
because of the pressure around us. And what we do is we miss out on God's timing. And so we come to a place where we pray hastily and hurriedly. And then we dive into the situation asking God to bless it. And all too often it's this kind of thing, God bless this mess. In reality, that's what the prayer is. Then we wonder why the mess gets worse. It's because we went beyond what God was leading in that hour, went beyond God's timing. We failed to follow the lesson of Jesus Christ, who never, ever, for even a moment in his life, got one step behind the leading of God, or one step ahead of the leading of God, but was always in step with the timing and the plan of God. And what a lesson that is for us. It is a hard thing to learn, but it is something we must learn to stay in step with the Lord and not be sidetracked from His ultimate purpose for us in this life on this earth. So the statement from Mary, the response from Jesus, leads to the command to the servants. If you look at John 2, 5, And His mother said to the servants, Whatever He says to you, do it. She never lost confidence in Him for a moment. She knew Him. She may not know everything now, and she understands she doesn't know everything, but she also knows Him. So she turns to the servants and she says, listen, whatever he tells you to do. And then what he does is such an amazing thing. He turns the water into wine and he does it as these men obey. And this is God's way. What a phrase, whatever he says to you, do it. That is a phrase that we ought to live our lives by. The way God works is this. God's appointed way to bless us is that We step out in faith and obedience. We take the first step and then comes the blessing. And all too often we just hang back and survey the situation and we look at it. We want all the information. Now Lord, show me what you want to do here. God shows you just enough. And then He begins to prompt you to step out in faith. He begins to prompt you to step out in obedience and you fail to do it. And you hang back because you want more information from God. But all the while, this thing is still surging within your heart. And it's there month in, month out, week in, week out. It's God leading you. Take the first step. So often I think of when Philip was down in Samaria and revival broke out. And he's in the middle of the greatest event of his whole life. And all of a sudden, God begins to prompt him. He says, I want you to go down to Gaza. There's nothing at Gaza. Go down to Gaza. Leave this thing. He leaves Gaza. He takes that initial step of faith and obedience. He goes down to Gaza. He's walking along the road. And suddenly, here comes a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch in it, a very influential man going back to his country to ultimately take the gospel, which was God's plan. He's reading the book of Isaiah, right where it talks about the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit says, now go explain the thing to him. The next thing you know, he's baptizing a very influential man who's going to take the gospel now beyond the borders it's been taken before. And a great work then no doubt happened from there. But you see, he had to take that initial step of faith. So often it leads to the supernatural. This man was converted, the Ethiopian eunuch. And then, just to add some pizzazz to the scene, when they come up out of the water, just to sort of crown off his obedience, we read that Philip was caught up and away and was found walking around in a place called Azotus. And so he's translated from one place to the next in a supernatural way by God, as if God wanted to say, thanks, Philip. Just wanted to see if you would do it. You did it. The job was done. And now I just want to bless you with a supernatural touch. Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. Don't miss what's going to happen next. And they do it. And the blessing and the miracle comes. And I just want to say to you in passing through here, I wonder how many have missed out on God's plan of blessing because they won't take that step of faith. Sometimes you take the step of faith and God just blows your mind. Whatever he says to you, do it, Mary says. That is something to write down on your mirror, on your wall, to frame it, to keep it there for the rest of your life. To take that step of faith and see the supernatural hand of God. And we've seen God bless and do things we never, ever imagined he could do in our lives. He has filled our cup to overflowing. And it makes you want to be open to that next step. What is it you want to do next, Lord? I know you want to bless me. Don't let me miss it. Whatever he says to you, do it. So the wedding at Cana, the statement from Mary, finally leads to the miracle of Jesus. And here we come to the water pots in verses 6 and 7. Now that we're set, there are six water pots of stone. Why stone? Because the Jews used in their purification only stone pots, not pottery because of the certain thing attached to the purification. Six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. 
Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and notice they filled them up to the brim. Everything there is important. The fact that here are these stone water pots, and John writing his gospel to the Greeks to get the word out to the Gentiles, wants the Greeks to know that there's a purpose for these water pots. Why? Well, because the Jews are into this purification thing with water. One thing is you stomp around the countryside, you're wearing sandals, you step in the mud, you cake the mud on your feet, you come into the house, your feet are filthy, they're caked with dirt, they need to be washed. The other thing is, is the Jews were really into purification at meals. So they would wash their hands before meals. They had to be washed from these special stone pots, and then they would wash them in between all the courses in the meal. They would even pour the water on a certain way so it ran down your wrist and your fingertips a certain way. They were really into it. So John writing to Gentiles who know none of this, who are going to tend to stand back and say, this is a big hoax. They brought in these water pots, six of them, big ones, the disciples brought them in. Six disciples, six spots. We know what's going on here. This is all an arrangement to make it look like he did this big miracle. No, the pots were there because it was a feast, because they had to use the water for purification. Crucial information to see the validity of the miracle. So it's a standard thing that the pots would be there. And then the fact that he says to fill the water pots, and then we're told they were filled to the brim. Why is that important? so that you would know nothing was added to the water to make it be somewhat wine. There was no more room. They were filled to the brim with water. Whatever happened from there had to be a miracle. And so John records these very important details. And then the wine. It says in verse 8, He said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it, sort of the master of ceremonies. And the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from. Love this, but the servants who had drawn the water knew where it came from. The master of the feast, he couldn't believe it. He calls the bridegroom. He says, this is incredible. No one ever does this. And so we come to his wonder, the wonder of the whole thing. The water pots lead to the wine, which leads to the wonder. And so the master of the feast is absolutely amazed. He didn't know where the wine came from. He calls to the bridegroom. And he says, listen, everybody knows, verse 10, that every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept back the good wine until now. Now he is not saying that when everybody gets really drunk, then they bring out the inferior wine. He is not saying that. You go to these, one of these places, they give you a giant steak. In the beginning, you're just, ah, oh, you're excited, you're, you're drooling, you're, you're just, you can't wait to slice it. You get about halfway through that thing and you're getting full. You've had some garlic bread and you've been drinking your Coke and they keep coming back saying, want another Coke? And you say, well, sure. And they're bringing it back and then more of this and more of that and this other thing. And the next thing you know, you're gone. I don't know if I even like steak. I'm so full. It happens to me with Chinese food. I get all excited about Chinese food. I'm plowing through all these cartons. You know those funny-shaped cartons? Look like goldfish might be in them. And I'm plowing through all this stuff, and, and I'm, oh, Chinese food! It's my life! But then, you know, I've eaten too much, and pretty soon, if I never eat Chinese food again, it, oh, that last bite kind of did something funny to my mind. It, when you've had enough, you've had enough. So when everybody knows, he says that when you're at the feast and you've had enough, and... You're in an environment where the rabbi spoke repeatedly against drunkenness. You just had enough. You don't care. So they bring out the inferior stuff and a few more people partake of it and whatever. It's not a big deal. He's saying, you're breaking all the rules. This is the most incredible wine. This stuff is heavenly. He's saying, it's just amazing. Where did this come from? You know what I like about that? That this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. He says, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. When the guests are well drunk, then the inferior. You've kept the good wine until now. And that is the Lord's way, to keep the good wine until now. Always a graduating, ascending scale of goodness with Jesus. Always a further surprise. It's the devil's way. Don't ever forget this. It is the devil's way to give you his best first and the worst always follows. Isn't that right? That's the devil's way. He lures you into the trap with his best and then you have to experience his worst once you've partaken of it. Christ is just the opposite. 
He draws you in by His love, by His Holy Spirit. You have your conversion experience. It's good. It's wonderful. You begin to know God. But if you've really been walking with God, those of you that have known Him for some period of time, you can honestly be here tonight and say, you know what? I can say of a truth, He has kept the best one until now. The best blessings have come at this point in my life. They're deeper. They're more meaningful. They're more appreciated. You see, this is the way of our Lord, just the opposite of the devil. And so Jesus manifests his goodness. He meets a very desperate need with some very poor people in a very ordinary situation, but it was very important to them. The most important, one of the most important events, certainly in the life of the people who got married and in the festivities for the villagers. And the result is that the disciples were strengthened. Look at verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. But don't forget, only a partial manifestation, the full manifestation came when his hour had come and he died and rose again and ascended on our behalf. See, it was a long road ahead, but this was the first in a long series of special signs, special manifestations of who he was as he progressively revealed himself to be the Son of God the Savior of the world. And so his disciples came to a place of greater faith in him. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Greek literally could be translated, they made a surrender. They didn't come to just believe for the first time. They already believed. What happened here is they saw this, and they made a further surrender to Christ. And that's his design for all of us here today. If you're his child and he's been working in your life, the design of that good work is that you would make a further surrender. But as the years roll by and the blessings come and he keeps saving better ones and better ones for the future and manifesting them, that you would come to a place of further surrender, further belief, further confidence, further commitment. That's the idea. And then we read in verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. And we will go on to see what happens after that in our next study in the Gospel of John. If you leave here with nothing else today, leave here with this. Whatever he says to you, do it. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, today for the Gospel of John and Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Thank you, Jesus, that your hour has come and that you have died on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that you were unwavering in your purpose and you went to the cross and you bore each and every one of our sins. And that now we can know you personally and share in your glory in our experience with you because of it. Help us, Lord, to follow you that as you work in our lives to grow in our commitment to you, to grow in that surrender, and each and every time you do something significant in the middle of a desperate situation, when we cry, oh God, help me, help us, Lord, to come away more surrendered and not to just forget about it and go back to the way things were, but to move forward with you, not one step ahead, not one step behind, but being careful to stay with your timing, you might bring to pass your ultimate purpose in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.